0: Sonny D is cupping his jaw with both hands, writhing on the gurney, and pleading with me to give him something for the pain. His teeth, those that remain, are a ragtag crew of decay. He needs a dentist, but he lacks insurance, and the private dentist he contacted won't see him without cash up front. I'm trying, Doc, he says, as if reading what I'm thinking. You think I want to be here? I don't know what to think. Looking into his mouth makes my own jaw throb. But I do know that four or five new heroin users kick-started their habits by abusing painkillers. Opioid painkillers and heroin were responsible for nearly 50,000 lives lost in 2016 from drug overdoses. In my emergency medicine practice, those statistics have faces, and sometimes those faces have rotted teeth.
1: Hello, and welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, founding editor of STAT's First Opinion. Before STAT launched, we wanted a way to engage our readers, not just have them read what our stable, of very talented reporters were putting out every day. From that interest was born the idea of an opinion perspective platform. What we're aiming to do is have our readers contribute their own ideas and perspectives on what's going on in the world of the life sciences. The types of people who contribute to First Opinion are really extraordinarily varied. They range from biotech and pharmaceutical insiders to physicians, healthcare executives, lawmakers, all sorts of healthcare workers, and regular folks like me. For me, it's like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. The submissions range from fairly wonky policy analyses to the highly personal stories about one person's experience with the healthcare system or drug prices or the pharmaceutical industry. There are many people who much prefer listening to reading. My hope is that the First Opinion podcast will reach some of those folks but even people who are loyal readers will get a lot out of the podcast. In each interview, I'll ask the guest to recap her or his first opinion, but that'll just be the jumping off point. We will go much, much deeper where I do not know. We'll let the questions and the answers direct where the conversations go. For our inaugural episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Jay Baruch, an emergency physician and longtime Stack contributor. He's written memorable stories about everyday moral dilemmas that he faces working in the emergency department, like the excerpt you heard at the top of the episode with Sonny D. I'll talk with Jay about his stories, his work in the emergency department, and more right after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C Y T I V A.com. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Jay.
0: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, Pat.
1: I have so many questions. One is, when you're with a patient, are you sometimes thinking this would make a great essay
0: or or does all that come later? That comes later. That comes uh, much, much later. It's really important for me to be able to separate these these two aspects of my brain for many, many reasons. Uh, First and foremost has to do with just being able to take care of a patient, you know, I patients come to me uh, not to be written about for me to care for them. So there's a lot of uh, ethical reasons why I have to be very, very careful to put my patients first, their stories first, um, and to be listening and responding to their needs uh, primarily. When I end up writing about situations, it's usually much, much later. And often it's because uh, it's something like something happened. Uh, Often it's not them, it's me. It's my response to the situation that has been nagging at me. And if something sticks around long enough, uh, I finally um, decide to sort of figure it out and play with it on the page. And eventually it uh, it finds itself into sentences. And even though it's only a small fraction of those end up sort of being sent out for publication. It must be interesting
1: through that thought process how a particular patient, or is it an amalgam of patients, coalesce.
0: What I discovered about my writing is actually not so much how the experience of caring for patients then find their way onto the page, but but how writing about the experience, about processing challenging situations uh, forces me to pay attention differently um, and actually helps me and uh, how I listened to to patients' stories. And that's uh, eventually how I started writing more nonfiction work because I recognized that a lot of the stories and a lot of the situations that, that really challenged me the most, that really made me uneasy, were those that were really fraught with, with so much ambiguity and uncertainty. And we weren't really taught that in medical education. And one part of my education where that was embraced is actually in writing, in creative writing and thinking about uncertainty and problems and tension. And those are opportunities to explore and to probe. And so I found myself leaning more and more on those skills, more those more creative skills as necessary and important uh, clinical skills.
1: Do the stories in your books what's left out and 14 stories do they also arise from the emergency department
0: those books of fiction though there are some pieces in it that have scenes in the emergency department many of them most of them actually do not i will say that the the fiction you know ends up emerging from oftentimes it emerges from some real life situations and then I the imagination sort of takes over and I go I can never say that like I would never say that to a patient you know imagine this like I have a story in one of the one of the pieces where we had a particular night this is many many years ago where I probably I don't know we had a a couple of intoxicated drivers who like crashed into poles and there was always a thousand different excuses as to why they crashed into the pole and I went home and I'm you know I said like no one takes responsibility it's like it's almost like they blame the pole so i said well, what if like what if you create a reality and where it truly happens like people actually blame the poles. like people truly think that the poles are moving that the poles have something out for the intoxicated drivers like what would that world look like and what would motivate that world like what would animate that world and so it started from something concrete it entered through sort of this imaginative landscape and by fiction sort of moves in a very different direction than than the non-fiction does i mean the the fiction starts in some place sort of very concrete and then moves into these other places and then my the nonfiction actually usually starts in some place i'm trying to get at and i'm trying to make it very very small like i'm trying to think about a really tiny it ultimately involves a very sort of small moment that really sort of has to be cracked open and so i find myself moving in different directions from the from the fiction piece to the nonfiction.
1: Interesting. So you you were an English major in college. I was and then headed to med school when when you and your med school colleagues were reading Leninger's biochemistry and Brownwald's heart disease. What other reading were you sneaking in that they probably weren't?
0: I can't speak for what they weren't reading. I could I could definitely say what I wasn't reading. (laughs) My I had a tough time memorizing you know, I had a tough time. So two things immediately come to mind. So one is I remember being so exhausted from uh, studying for biochemistry because I was looking at I was seeing it for the first time and it was pure memorization for me, uh, was at some point sort of like giving up and, and rereading The Great Gatsby because it was short. <laughs> I knew it, it was like an old friend. And another uh, discovery for me was, Going to the bookstore at the medical school, and between classes, and and they had uh, they had William Carlos Williams' doctor stories, the one that was edited by Robert Coles. It's a great book. And I knew his and I knew uh, Williams' poetry. I didn't know his short stories so much, and I just loved that work probably for a lot of reasons that some people had some problems with this work in that, you know, the doctors weren't always portrayed as heroes. You know, they were always portrayed as sort of these flawed characters. Hmm. And being able to sort of embrace this complexity and the fact that, you know, you can be a physician and you can have these thoughts about your patients and you can be still trying to be devoted to them and to care for them. And you're not this this shiny, valiant um, knight in armor, really embraced me because I didn't feel that way. And I felt like that there was an honesty, a real raw honesty to those stories that I really clung to. And looking back, I think that those stories were began the process of me thinking of myself as like maybe I can do this, not like I am William Carls Williams, but I think I can be raw in this way. I think I can be honest in this way. Um, and I and I had a model who who said that this is perhaps one way of doing it. And by teaching some of those stories and and getting a sense of their responses from students, from from readers, you know, you realize like those are the types of Really honest stories that people are engaged with uh, because they're so honest. It's great to
1: discover touchstones like that. I remember reading Lorna Isley's essay "The Star Thrower" when I was in college and thinking, "Damn, I wish I could think and write like that." Who are some of the other writers? Maybe maybe ones today that you follow and learn from.
0: What you decide to connect with, like who you decide to connect with, is oftentimes a discovery process to itself, right? Then you figure out why. So a writer who, I, who I've who i always sort of loved and have constantly returned back to are writers who write short fiction. So, you know, I, I really, I'm a big fan of, of Chekhov's short stories, and I return to them again and again. Uh, I'm a big fan of Isaac Babel. Again, like to be able to create uh, these very short stories to create worlds. The idea of sort of each sentence pulling their weight is is really really important to me. I also love writers with a strong sense of voice who comment situations in a way that I find just really interesting. So short story writers like Amy Hempel, I love um, Alice Munro. Amongst physician writers, I think they're like sort of the the usual suspects of. People who I respect for different reasons. I mean, I I really I really am a big fan of uh, Atul Gawande's work for just, just for the way he manages to blend policy with uh, with narrative. Uh, though that's I, not I, easy not way, to do, which is not really easy to do, and and he makes it look easy. He holds up the me- the healthcare system in a very stark way, using very beautiful, clean sentences like that of a surgeon. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I admire how he does that. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm friends and I'm a big admirer of uh, Mikhail uh, Sikaris, who writes for The Times. He's a uh, hematologist, oncologist. His pieces are, are, are just fraught with humility and humanity. I love the work of Louisa Aronson, her short fiction, um, and her, her work on geriatrics. Obviously Daniel O'Frey. I mean there are others, and I don't want to go too deeply because then i'm there's be people I'm leaving out, and i'm I'm already feeling terrible about people i'm leaving out
1: so I, I i have a feeling that there are other people that I would ask that question, and your name would come up as someone that they read and admire
0: i don't I don't know about that i'm yeah, I think so you know <laughs> i um try to be as authentic as you can you know i I feel like it's really. It's really hard. I mean, the beautiful thing about writing when you're older is that it's you're no longer a prodigy and no one really expects anything from you. So you have the freedom to write the types of pieces that you feel are important. And you also recognize your strengths and your weaknesses, you know. And I, I feel that there are so many talented physician writers now. So many talented physician writers. And a lot of them are, are doing some great journalism pieces. they're doing great in-depth pieces. They're doing fantastic policy pieces. and they, they do that really, really well. And I don't know if I do that well. I, I still think I'm someone who comes from a narrative place uh, primarily and then moves in, is moving into like nonfiction. I don't ha- I don't sense that authority that I feel that so many of my colleagues have and deserve. Um, but I do feel there's, there's a place that, that I'm trying to sort of inhabit. You know, I think Eudora Welty has her, had her, has her environment, has her setting, has her world, you know, Faulkner had his world, Twain had his world. I'm not equating myself with them in any stretch of the imagination, but I do think it sort of begs us to wonder, like, you know, what is it that, that, that world that we're trying to enter into and, and how can we do that in an original way? Uh, How can we bring something new to the table that perhaps other people are not are not doing or you're not aware that they're doing um, that might be interesting and might have them look at what they look at all the time through a new lens? And and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do.
1: Well, I hope we all get to read the outcome of that work and that struggle. (laughs) I understand you're working on another book. Can you tell me about it?
0: Yeah, so it's called um, essentially titled The Tornado of Life, and it's based on a lot of short essays that I hopefully together sort of make the argument that um, you know the practice of, of emergency medicine, and I believe the practice of medicine as a whole, is really a practice of dealing with patients, um, complicated and, uh, and oftentimes difficult and vulnerable stories.
1: Does the title come from one of your first opinion essays?
0: The title comes from one of my first opinion essays, and actually the, the book got the attention of the MIT press um, because of that particular essay called The Tornado of Life.
1: So the, the essay, Stuck in the Tornado of Life, is, is terrific. It's an essay about a young woman who had overdosed on heroin, possibly on purpose, and who was beset by a raft of other problems. Can I ask you to read an excerpt from it?
0: Sure. When I asked Cheryl, if she wanted to kill herself, whether she still possessed the desire to die, she turned away from me and didn't answer. I didn't feel the silence, but just sat there. After taking a deep breath, she said, I'm stuck in a tornado of life. What do you say to someone caught up in the tornado of life? whose problems are so woven into other problems that you're almost afraid to tug at a single thread for fear of everything unraveling. The plot of Cheryl's story was hard to listen to. I was afraid to ask more questions. There was no bottom to our troubles. Pitted against a tornado of life, I felt utterly powerless. Luckily, I recognized that she was telling me me a chaos narrative. The sociologist, Arthur Frank, framed the pivotal idea of a chaos narrative. He refers to patient stories that smack of a complete lack of control. If a narrative describes a sequence of connected events, then a chaos narrative defies such ordering. Frank points out that putting language to these experiences can be difficult for patients. They can possess a hurried quality, as if the person is trying to catch the suffering in words.
1: That's really great. You extend and explore that in the in the essay, if I recall correctly. Right. In the new book, so are you hard at work? This isn't a collection of things already written. Are you still creating new things for it?
0: It's really interesting writing a book during COVID that basically began pre-COVID. I wrote the book during two COVID surges. Uh, there's a lot of new material, new essays there. Uh, I expand upon many of the essays that had appeared in First Opinion, to because I had the liberty of having a little bit more room, and to take into account how some of the ideas in those essays somehow get tilted, somehow get changed because of COVID and the different world that we live in now. It was it's been a real fun. Uh, aggravating, gnawing, many many sleepless nights. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's something I'm really proud of because it's so much of what I think of emergency medicine and medicine as a whole, which is as a creative act. And, uh, and though we claim that medicine is, is an evidence-based practice, uh, the the truth of the matter is, is that there's so much that we take for granted uh, in the doctor-patient relationship and how we actually um, think about patient stories. You know, for example, like, you know, stories are constructed, like they're not like this, this solid thing that we just get. You know, the one thing you learn when you when you write is that, you know, I'll sit there in my like my my essays I wrote for you, Pat. You know, I can't tell you how many drafts I wrote. And and then we still went over it back and forth. And, and when my patients come in to tell me their story, I mean, they're essentially giving me a first draft. Hmm. And we have to make decisions off these first drafts. And oftentimes they're trying to figure out what their story is as they're telling it. And there's all this information they don't oftentimes know what's important or what's unimportant information. So they'll tell you everything or they'll tell you nothing because they're scared of what it all means. There's so much, there's so many decisions that go into like how a story is framed and ultimately like our great responsibility is to try to make certain that the story that we're hearing is the one that they're telling because the best medicine, won't work on the wrong story.
1: You know, I'm almost sad that I know this book is coming out because now I really want to read it as opposed to just somebody telling me one day, hey, Jay Baruch's got a new book. Um, <laughs> when, when can we look forward to it?
0: Uh, hopefully in um, a year, a year and a half, we'll see. If my editor is actually listening to this podcast by the time it comes out, I will have finished the draft.
1: Cool. Well, it sounds like you've got work ahead, so I'm gonna let you go, but it's been a pleasure talking with you and working with you on First Opinion Essays.
0: Oh, it's been an honor to be working with you, Pat, and to be published in STAT, and um, I can't tell you how how grateful I am for everything you and STAT has done for me, and I just wanna say thank you to everybody.
1: Well, thank you all for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It is produced by senior producers Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado and producer Teresa Gaffney. Thanks to executive producer Rick Burke. We'd love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.